been looking at a bit of a series on Jesus and prayer. Um, so Dan last week spoke on Ask and You Will Receive. Um, and this, this week we're going to be looking at persistent prayer. So what perhaps happens when those answers don't come, when they expect them to? Um, maybe, maybe you're sat here, this is your first time at Revelation Church, and maybe you, you don't even consider yourself a Christian. Uh, you'd think, you know, I've still got loads of questions about all this God stuff and Christianity. Or maybe you've never even thought about it. Perhaps you, you've just stumbled across Revelation Church on your travels and you're thinking, um, you're not even sure how you got here. Well, I, I think this morning will be relevant to you um, in particular because actually kind of when, when we look at this passage, what you'll see is that Jesus says, you know, when we come to God and we ask, he will answer us. So we can be confident that when we come to God and we have questions, and when we have things that we're asking for, he will give them to us and we will receive from him. Um, and so I want to start with uh, an illustration. The founder of CNN, Ted Turner, received an award for work on the environment and world peace. He received it at an American Humanist Association banquet, and there he openly criticised Christianity. He said, Jesus would be sick at his stomach over the way his ideas have been twisted. He went on to say, I've been saved seven or eight times, but I gave up on it when, despite my prayers, my sister died. The more I strayed from my faith, the better I felt. You see, Ted Turner might be wrong. Ted Turner may be the one who's twisted God's teaching on prayer. But actually, I think what he's doing is he's perfectly reflecting the attitude that's in our culture around us, and maybe even some Christians have towards God and prayer. That when it gets tough, and when things, that when things uh, aren't answered when we expect them to, we just kind of give up. We throw up our hands in defeat. We just say, there's no point. It's useless. Prayer doesn't work. But like Ted Turner, he gave up. His sister died. He just gave up. But actually, this morning... I want to to teach us that actually we can be persistent in prayer. When we look at this passage, you'll see that when we persist in prayer, God will answer us. And we can have confidence that he will answer us. Maybe not in the way we expected him to. Maybe not when we expected him to. But he will answer us. It may be that you've been tempted in the past to to give up praying for something. Or you've just assumed that attitude of defeat. It's just no use. It doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. Um, But actually... Today I want to teach you that, that what Jesus says and when he gives this example, this parable, this story, that actually persistence in prayer does work. God does answer. When we come and we ask again and again, God will answer. So in these verses that we're going to look at, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story um, to uh, the Pharisees at the time who were asking him questions. Um, the story basically teaches us the importance of persisting in prayer. Why, why do we need to learn about persistence in prayer? Is it just because we give up easily? Is it because we, we're not persistent in prayer? Um, oh, I don't think you need to verse up yet. But, um, we'll get there, we'll get there. <laughs> but because in the church and in our lives, everything rises or falls on prayer. Prayer is so significant to our lives and the lives of those around us, that it's absolutely key and essential. You see, we're committed as a church to praying, just as the early church was in Acts. It says that they devoted themselves to prayer. We're committed to prayer. 
We're committed to what God is doing in North London. We're committed to seeing his kingdom come. We're committed as people, um, you know, to seeing things happen where there's no apparent fruit at the moment. So my hope for us this morning is that we would all be uh, inspired to prioritise prayer and then be persistent with those prayers. So let's turn to Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they are always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by a continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the righteous judge says. And will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, as we look at these eight verses uh, in the book of Luke, that the second half of that verse eight, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It may seem a little kind of out of context as if that, that, that sentence in and of itself summarises more than just this parable. All of a sudden, you know, Jesus is talking on persistence in prayer and all of a sudden he turns to when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So what is this link? Well, to discover what this link is, we need to look back further. Um, when the Bible was first written, there were no chapters, there were no verses. They were purely, purely put in so that we could find reference points as we search through the Bible. So the, the context of this passage is found in the previous chapter, chapter 17. Um, that's fine. Okay, all right. <laughs> they're, 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 unfortunately, they haven't put verses uh, through the text, so um, I will just—I'll I'll go through it, and you know, you can read it, and I will explain as we go. You see, Jesus has been talking about his second coming. In verse twenty, the Pharisees asked him, which is right at the beginning. They asked him when the kingdom would come. You see, the Pharisees uh, were expectant for a coming kingdom in the Old Testament. The kingdom was God's rule. It was, it was God ruling and establishing his kingdom on the earth. They thought this might, might be military, and that the Romans, who were the oppressing force at the time, they may, they may have thought that God's kingdom would overthrow the Romans, and once again Israel would be established as a free nation to rule the world. But we see that, um, unfortunately, this isn't the case. When, when Jesus says uh, that he's come to bring the kingdom, in verse 21, because, you see, God's kingdom isn't about uh, military power. It's not about political power. It's about spiritual authority. It's about things of the spirit. So when Jesus came, he came to bring God's kingdom. You see, and, when, and later on in the, the verses, we can see that when Jesus comes, it's going to be like a lightning bolt that flashes from sky to sky. It will be sudden. It will be... Uh, massive. There will be no mistaking it when it comes. But what, what will it be? Will there be kind of a, a, a sort of preparation for this? Well, no. The Bible says that actually, just like in the days um, 
before they were, they were eating, drinking, buying, selling, building and planting. These things are just going on. It's natural. Things would be just, it's just business as usual, everyday life. And then suddenly, Jesus comes. The lightning bolt that flashes across the sky. It will come suddenly. And so with this backdrop that Jesus is coming, with this backdrop that Jesus will return, like a lightning bolt, we must persist. We must look to the future. And Jesus brings this, this, this almost revolutionary teaching that his, his kingdom is spiritual and that we must be those that persist and persist in prayer so that we would never stop praying until he returns. So verse 1, And he told them a parable to the effect that they are always to pray and not lose heart. Luke gives us a little summary here in this first verse and thankfully, um, kind of summing it up for us, really. And you might say a summary, a conclusion, that should come surely at the end of the verse. But actually, in the context of the, the passage, you can see that, that this, is, this, this teaching is what Jesus is then going to expound upon. So this parable that we're looking at is an illustration of this point, that we are always to pray and not lose hearts. As we look at this parable, I'd like us to, to examine three aspects or three people that we meet throughout the story. Um, one being the judge, the other the widow, and finally God. So firstly to the judge. The judge, he was a corrupt man. Um, we can see this in verse 2. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God. Now, you may ask me, how do you, how do you know that this man was corrupt? You, I, I haven't seen his bank balance, I don't know the details of his life. But actually, the fact that he did not fear God demonstrated that he was corrupt. How can I say that? Well, if he didn't fear God, he would have had no regard for God. He would have had no regard for God's law that had been given to Moses hundreds of years previously. He'd have had no concern for the law. He wouldn't have been in any... Um, he wouldn't have had any compulsion to upkeep the law or bring about justice. He didn't fear the Lord. Just like the Israelites, when they turned from the law, you can see in 2 Kings, can we have that verse up? To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. And they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law of, of the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Israel, whom he named Israel. You see, they, they disobeyed the law because they didn't fear God. And in the same way, this, this judge, because he didn't fear God, he wouldn't have obeyed the law. He wouldn't have uh, executed justice. He was a corrupt judge. Secondly, he was a callous man. In verse 2, again, not only did he uh, not fear the Lord, but also he had no regard for man. Because he had no regard for man, he wouldn't have been uh, compassionate, towards people. He wouldn't have been um, inspired to help in any way. And we can see this most clearly when this widow comes to plea for justice. He just turns her aside. He just refuses her outright. He just says no. And he just, he he was hard-hearted. He was closed-minded and he was callous. Thirdly, he was condescending. Condescending means that you look down on others. You esteem yourself to be higher. And we can see in verse 5, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. You see, his reasons 
for giving justice to, the, to this widow are selfish. Not because she deserves justice, but because she's a nuisance. Because she's made a nuisance of herself. Now at this point you may be thinking, this description of the judge, that he was corrupt, that he was callous and condescending, it doesn't sound anything like uh, how God is towards us when we come and pray. It doesn't sound anything uh, similar to what God might, uh, how God might treat our prayers. But elsewhere in the, in, uh, in, in the Bible, Jesus talks about his coming as like a thief in the night. Now that's not to say that he is a thief, but it's, it's to describe the attitude with which he's coming. It will be sudden. It'll be unexpected. It'll be like a burglar breaks into your house. It'll be, there'll be a shock about it. And in the same way, he says that when the Son of Man comes, it will be sudden, like that lightning bolt from sky to sky. And so here, when we look at the judge, he's not saying that God is um, corrupt, he's callous, and he's condescending. No, but he is saying, actually, that God answers in his time. That God knows, God created the universe, and he sustains it. And he understands the situations and the circumstances that you're in. And he will answer in his time. So for us, the lesson here is that we might not get an answer immediately. We might not get everything we we ask for straight away. But we must keep asking. We must keep believing that God's going to answer. Because he will. Just like the judge. And so, let's turn our attention now to the widow. This widow, there's... I I want to pick out four things about her. Firstly, her demand, what she asks for. We don't know the details of what she's asking for, but we do know that it's justice. It's what's rightfully hers. she's, She's owed this. It's her duty. She's not making some outrageous claim like on Judge Judy or whatever. You know, she she's coming for justice. You know, it's hers by right. Secondly, she has, she has some disadvantages in the modern day and age. Now, you need to understand something of, of the, the court system in that day. Um, it was often a very volatile place, not quite the order that we have today, but it was often quite aggressive environment. And uh, there were certain rules that the court would go by. Um, one was that women weren't allowed to uh, speak in court. They weren't openly permitted to uh, present a case in court. Um, Secondly, because she was a widow, she would have had no husband that could have spoken for her. As a widow, again, she would have been part of a segment of society that was very frequently oppressed, that was taken advantage of and mistreated. And as as a widow, again, she was most likely poor because they were overlooked, because they were oppressed. So she would have been poor, which meant that in the if she wanted to try and persuade an assistant or the judge to prioritise her case, she had no money with which to do it. She probably had very few possessions that she could actually use as a bribe. Again, this, this woman was determined. She was, she was determined. The Bible refers to her continual coming. This phrase, this phrase it implies that she was there every day, that she would keep coming back. And you can imagine it when the judge would turn up to work and there would just be this poor widow sat there again and again, day after day, and he'd arrive and she'd still be there. And every day she'd ask, can I have justice, please? Please give me justice. Give me justice against those that have wronged me. And every day, the same answer, no, no, no. It might have been a little bit bizarre at first to think somebody arriving, a bit of a stalker kind of 
wherever you look, she's there. But uh, after a while, it would just become a little bit annoying. Kind of, she'd constantly be asking for justice. And he'd be like, no. And you can imagine as he turned to the assistant and he'd say, is, is the widow here? And she'd be like, yeah, she's out back. She's going to ask for justice again. And he's going to have to refuse again. Because he, was, because he was a corrupt, callous, and condescending man. The, con- the answer would always have been the same, no. But she was determined. She kept returning, and she kept pleading for justice. She was a desperate woman. She had no, no other options. As a widow, she had very little social standing. She would have had, uh, most likely, very little money. She would have been desperate. Therefore, she made a nuisance of herself. She put her way in his path so that she could be heard, so that her voice could be heard. She, she had very little to actually try and persuade him with anything. This, this judge was her only option for justice. She didn't have any other options. She was desperate. It's, it's difficult for us to really understand this concept of desperation in a society that, you know, we have so many luxuries and so few needs. Um, but I'd like to illustrate... Uh, if I can, this, this woman's desperation with the story from my own life. Tanika, um, my wife and I, Matt, we got married three years ago, um, but we nearly didn't. <laughs> um, you see, in the UK, um, it's required that you state your intention to marry uh, with three weeks prior to the uh, date. This can be done through a parish church or a local registry office. Neither of us were a part of a parish church, so we had to go through a registry office. Tanika being organised, did this couple of months in advance and then told me, I, not being so organised, uh, let things slip. So two weeks before um, I, we were due to get married, I turned up to the registry office. I didn't know the, the requirements of three weeks and publications and I didn't know the ins and outs of it. Um, anyway, so I went to visit the registrar and as we were having that conversation, all of a sudden it dawned on me, the seriousness and as this issue arose, kind of, my, I felt a little bit queasy, head started to spin, started to feel a bit sick. And it was kind of that realisation that actually I was in trouble. <laughs> anyway, Tanika had, had, had you know, organised so much in terms of for our wedding and things like that. You know, there was family coming from America, there were caterers sorted, music, guests, uh, friends, there was... Um, bridesmaids, ushers, shoes, wedding dress, the works. It was all ready to go in two weeks' time, except we had no licence. We couldn't legally get married. Legally, we should have been refused. From that moment on, as soon as I walked out of that office, I thought to myself, "Okay, (laughs) this is a little bit desperate. Um, so I phoned, I phoned around um, several, several places, was passed from department to department to person to person, stating my case, trying to gain some sort of ground, but to no avail. In the end, after, after spending you know, a while on the phone, I eventually got nowhere. And actually, my only hope was in this registrar. He was the only one that could change the situation. He was going to phone his boss in London and see if he could organise some sort of official pardon for us so that we could get married in two weeks. Uh, I was pretty desperate by that point. We had no... I mean, there was nothing I could do. I'd done everything that I could. I had no other option. You see, like this widow, my only hope was in this 
was in this registrar. He was the only one that could change the situation. I was powerless. And then, to make matters worse, I spoke to some woman on the phone who told me that actually, in the previous year, only one person had been given a pardon and legally allowed to marry without the three weeks' notice. So my heart just sank even further. But one thing it did do was it drove me to prayer. Is it drove me to, to, to beg, to plead God that he would answer, that he would provide a way out of this, that he would provide a solution. And so as that phone call came and my heart leapt to my throat <laughs> and uh, after, after hours of prayer, by God's grace, we were allowed to get married. They gave us a pardon um, and so we were allowed to get married and everything went on according to plan. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> but you see, like this widow, I was desperate. I was desperate. I had no, I, I didn't have any other strings in my bow, if you like. You see, this widow represents us, doesn't she? Some of us will be coming to God with desperate prayers, desperate things that we need. Maybe your family don't know Jesus and you're desperate for it. Maybe, maybe you've lost your job in the recent cuts and you're desperate for a new one. You can't, you can't survive any longer without a job. You know, you need, you need to have some income. Maybe you're, maybe you're sick or you're hurting this morning and you need healing and you're desperate for it and you've come to God time and time again. And when we come, the, temp- the temptation can often be when we don't get those answers, it's just to say, well, there's no point. We'll just throw up our hands in defeat. But if we can learn one thing from this woman, it's that the persistence in prayer pays off. You see, she kept praying, despite all of the obstacles against her, despite everything stacked against her, she kept praying. She kept moving forward. She kept asking the judge for justice. She kept coming to him and asking. You see, here at Revelation Church, one thing that we're desperate for is to see people saved. In a small church, that can seem like a long way off. In a small church where maybe one or two people become Christians here or there, it can seem so far off. But we're desperate for it. We believe that God's going to give it to us. And so what do we do? We come back and we ask. And we ask and we keep asking. You see, we've seen answers to prayer, haven't we? We've seen provision of housing. We've seen provision of jobs. You see, let those answers to prayer inspire us to come back and hammer again. Let those answers drive us to our knees and come to God and beg. Hear this from a Christian man, a guy called George Muller. He lived in the 19th century and opened schools and orphanages for street children in Bristol. One day, George Muller began praying for five of his friends. After many months, one of them came to the Lord. Ten years later, two others were converted. It took 25 years before the fourth man was saved. Muller persevered in prayer until his death for the fifth friend. And throughout those 52 years, he never gave up hoping that he would accept Christ. His faith was rewarded because soon after his death, his fifth friend became a Christian. You see, this prayer warrior, this man who fought in prayer, and he saw answers with his four friends, he kept fighting for the fifth one. And even he could boldly say, the great fault of the children of God is they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. You see, what he's saying is, we just give up too easily. (laughs) You know, we just throw in the towel. We say, you know, it's no use. 
Let's not, be, let's not have that said of us. Let's be those that persist in prayer, that persist for answers, that come to God again and again. The final character in our story that I'd like us to look at is God. Jesus, in verses 7 and 8, uh, says, And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You see, Jesus explains this this judge as the giver of justice, and then he contrasts this judge with our Heavenly Father, this corrupt, callous, condescending judge. He contrasts him with God the Father. You see, God is nothing like this unrighteous judge. He's nothing like him. He delights in answering our prayers. God hears his people. You see, we never need to fear that God doesn't hear us because his ear is ever open to the cry of his children. In 1 John verse 5, um, verses 14, chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. You see, we can be sure, we can have confidence that he will answer our prayers because he hears us. God honours our persistence. Will he delay long over them, it says in verse 7? Sometimes prayer is given immediately, isn't it? Sometimes answers come instantaneously. Maybe for a healing, you pray and somebody gets healed. But sometimes they don't come so quickly. Sometimes we wait. You see, the key is not to give up. God isn't just making us wait. He's not like the judge. He's working out the answers that we seek in his timing, in his will, according to his plan and his purposes. You see, it might be quick or it might be long, but our persistence in prayer demonstrates the depth of our burden. So when we come to God and we come repetitively asking and asking, he will give us our answers. You see, if we come once or twice to God in prayer for, for something and then we just give up, it doesn't really demonstrate a depth of burden. We weren't really passionate for something. But if we repeatedly return, if we repeatedly come back and ask God, then he will answer. A group of American pastors arrived in England to visit various sites. They happened to stop at a small house in the southwest of England, a cottage that John Wesley used to stay in whilst on preaching tours. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church and led one of the greatest revivals this country's ever known. As the party all reassembled at the coach and as they were counted back on, they noticed that one man was missing. So, after searching for him, they found him. He was knelt at the side of the bed in the guest room where John Wesley had knelt to pray all those years ago. And the pastor was praying, Do it again, Lord. Do it again in our generation. That man was Billy Graham. Billy Graham went on to preach the gospel in person to more people than anyone in history. It's, it's, it's reported that an estimated 2.5 million people responded to the good news of Jesus throughout his ministry. He was a spiritual advisor to countless successive American presidents. He persevered in prayer. He was after something. He was burdened with something. God handles our petitions. In verse, at the beginning of verse 8, 
I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He doesn't turn a deaf ear to our petitions. He begins the process of working out those requests that we have, and he does it speedily. In truth, you see, the real prayer, real, honest, genuine, burdened prayer, is, is, is evidence of God's impending answer. He will answer us. Why? Because real prayer starts with God. You see, it's, it's God who, who, who burdens our hearts with his. It's God who, who stirs our cares with his. So, so, so we have God's, God's burdens, and they're his burdens. And what do we do? We offer those burdens up to him in prayer. Just as the widow came and repeatedly asked for justice, so we return with our burdens, with our cares, with our, with our unsaved loved ones, with jobs, with housing, whatever it might be, we return, we come back, because we know we can be sure that God will answer. But it'll be in his timing, not our own. We can't be so arrogant as to think that we can dictate God's agenda, that, that we understand the universe better than its creator, that, that, that we can you know, plan God's answers and how things are going to happen. This final illustration demonstrates the value of persistence in prayer. Roger Sims, hitchhiking his way home, would never forget the date, May 7th. His heavy suitcase made Roger tired. He was anxious to take off his army uniform once and for all. Flashing the hitchhiking sign to the oncoming car, he lost hope when he saw it was a black, sleek new Cadillac. To his surprise, the car stopped. The passenger door opened. He ran toward the car, tossed his suitcase in the back and thanked the handsome, well-dressed man as he slid into the front seat. Going home for keeps? Sure am, Roger responded. Well, you're in luck if you're going to Chicago. Not quite that far. Do you live in Chicago? I have a business there. My name is Hanover. After talking about many things, Roger, a Christian, felt a compulsion to witness, to tell the good news of Jesus to this 50-ish, apparently successful businessman about Christ. But he kept putting it off till he realised he was just 30 minutes from home and it was now or never. So Roger cleared his throat. Mr Hanover, I would like to talk to you about something very important. He then proceeded to explain the way of salvation. Ultimately asking Mr Hanover if he would then like to receive Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. To Roger's astonishment, the Cadillac pulled over to the side of the road. Roger thought he's going to be ejected from the car immediately. But the businessman bowed his head and received Christ. Then, Roger th- then, then he thanked Roger. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. Five years went by. Roger married, had a two-year-old boy and a business of his own. Packing his suitcase for a uh, business trip to Chicago, he found a small white card Hanover had given him five years before. In Chicago, he looked up Hanover Enterprises. A receptionist told him it was impossible to to see Mr. Hanover, but he could see Mrs. Hanover. A little confused and perplexed as to what was going on, he was ushered into a lovely office and found himself facing a keen-eyed woman in her 50s. She extended her hand. You knew my husband. Roger told her how her husband had given him a ride when hitchhiking home after the war. Can you tell me when that was? It, It was May 7th, five years ago. I was discharged from the army. Sorry. Anything special about that day? Roger hesitated. Should he mention giving his witness? Since he had come so far, he might as well. Mrs Hanover, I explained the gospel, and he pulled over to the side of the road and wept against the steering wheel. He gave his life to Christ that day, 
Explosive sobs shook her body. Getting a grip of herself, she sobbed, I had prayed for my husband's salvation for years. I believed God would answer. And Roger said, Where is your husband, Mrs Hanover? He's, he's dead, she wept, struggling to control herself. He was in a car crash after he let you out of the car. He never got home. You see, I thought God had not, given, not kept his promise. Sobbing uncontrollably, she added, I stopped living for God five years ago because I thought he'd not kept his word. You see, the significance of persisting in prayer, the significance of coming back to God with prayers and petitions again and again and again. I have two challenges for you this morning. Firstly, if you'd consider yourself a Christian this morning, I'd like, I'd like to tell you that here at Revelation Church, uh, we want to be those that when Jesus returns and that lightning bolt flashes from sky to sky, that we'll be found on our knees praying for God's kingdom to come in our lives and in the lives of those around us. You see, prayer is a truer mark of faith and action. It demonstrates where you place your faith, in Jesus or something else. You see, if we place it in anything else, then it's wrong. There are many people who do lots of good things in the world, lots of good acts, lots of philanthropists, and yet they have no faith in God. They don't believe Jesus died for their sins. They don't believe he rose again. And they don't believe that he will return. You see, if you have no faith, you won't pray. The logic is, if you don't believe that your friends can be saved, you'll stop praying for them. If you don't believe that God will provide a job, you'll stop praying. If you don't believe for healings, you'll stop praying. If you don't believe that next Sunday God can transform an entire estate, you'll stop praying for it. You see, we've got to be those that persist in prayer, that come to God again and again with our requests. Like that widow, give me justice. We need to come back to God. You see, I can assure you, brothers and sisters, that Jesus will return. And, uh, and he told this parable, verse 1, to the effect that we are always to pray and not lose heart. You see, so when Jesus returns and he says, we're, we're, where is it? Will he find faith on the earth? My prayer this morning is that he will at Revelation Church. He'll find a church that are after God, that are hungry for God's prayers, for God's answers, that are persisting in prayer. Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning, and you think, well, you know, with all this prayer stuff, what's really, what's really going on? Well, actually, you too need to persist in prayer. You need to persist that God would demonstrate Himself to you. If this, if this, if this gospel is true, then it changes everything. It changes your entire life. No longer are you living for yourself, but all of a sudden you have to change your priorities. You've really got to assess, you know, where you fit into this whole thing. Maybe you have prayed before, but you think, you know, I, I gave up when it didn't work. I gave up when circumstances overtook. Maybe you're like Ted Turner, whose sister died, and he let those circumstances extinguish what faith he had. Well, I'd say to you today that God loves you. And he, died, and he came to the world that he created and he died for your sins so that you could live in relationship with him, so that you could spend eternity with him forever. And the Bible says that if we, if we would like to follow Jesus and uh, become a Christian, then we must repent and believe. Repent just means to say sorry of the wrong things that you've done. 
Repent, repent just means to say sorry and turn around and ask God uh, to forgive you for your sins. Now, when, when I've finished in a few minutes, we're going to take the bread and wine um, as we sing some more songs. And the bread and wine symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us and the blood, his, his blood that was shed for us for, for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, if you, if you would like to become a Christian, then do, do please come and join us. We'd only ask that you would find somebody that you came with or find myself and just let, 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 let us know so that we can help you, so that we can um, give you some advice about where to go from here, what's the next step. Um, so I'm going to pray, and if the band would like to come up. Um, Lord Jesus, we want to be those, Lord, like the widow, Lord, that persist in prayer. Lord Jesus, that come back to you again and again. Lord, seeking the answers, Lord, that you've burdened us with. Lord Jesus, we want to be those, Lord Jesus, that don't give up. Lord, we don't want to throw up our hands in defeat, Lord. We don't want to be quitters. Lord Jesus, we want to be those that return to you again and again, Lord Jesus, because you will return. Lord, you will return like that lightning bolt across the sky. Lord Jesus, and we want to be those that are found, Lord Jesus, at your feet. Lord, praying, Lord, for what's on your heart. Lord Jesus, we believe that you have big things for North London. Lord Jesus, and we're believing you for it. Lord, and we want to take hold of them in prayer. Lord, we want to wrestle in prayer with them. Lord, until you provide answers. Lord, until you provide answers for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.